Good morning, friends. Welcome to Summerhill Church this Sunday morning. It really is great to have you with us. Um, I do want to say a special thanks to all those who kind of at the last minute have jumped in um, to get some things happening today. We've probably had, I think, one of our biggest Sundays of people having to stay at home uh, to keep themselves and us uh, well and healthy uh, just because of colds and COVID and that kind of thing. And that left a few gaps and people have been really gracious and kind in jumping in. Uh, to help us make sure we cover everything. So please do be praying for each other. For those of you who are joining us uh, online at home, um, we're glad that you can still join us uh, and we miss you being with us. We hope that you'll be back soon. Uh, Friends, we're going to be looking at John's Gospel over the coming uh, six or so weeks. And so it'd be wonderful if you had uh, that book of the Bible open. Uh, It was on page um, uh, 1063, 1063, uh, if you had flip the the passage shut, it'd be very handy to have it open. Uh, It's a dense, uh, beautiful, but sometimes bewildering chapter that we begin with. Uh, There's no way in in one sense that you could summarise easily the glory and the grandeur of the words uh, that are in this passage. And so what I'm going to do is, as we do regularly, is pray and ask that God's Spirit might speak to our hearts those things which our own minds aren't capable of of fully conceiving and grasping and delighting in ourselves. Let's pray that now. Uh, Dearest Father, we do wonder at the kind of God that you are, not only that, but the kind of God that you are toward people such as us. Father, we do ask that you might quieten our anxious or racing minds, that those things uh, that crowd in around us Uh, you might push back and give us peace and space to be attentive to your words to us this morning. That in seeing you and your son more clearly, we might rest more confidently in you and your precious words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Well, one of my childhood friends, Paul Archbold, was accustomed to sleeping in absolute pitch darkness. Uh, Every potential source of light in his bedroom would be, in one way or another, kind of masked out, so that when he slept at night, he could sleep in pitch black. Uh, And I remember the first night that I ever slept over at his place. I remember vividly the panic of waking up sometime in the middle of the morning in complete and utter darkness, urgently needing to visit the bathroom in a strange house, not knowing where I was. Jumping out of bed, I blindly felt my way along the wall that I knew the door was in that headed into the hallway, feeling for where the door handle should have been. But instead, I just found a a formless mass of jackets and clothes and dressing gowns all hanging on their wall hooks the whole way along the wall. And, And the door handle seemed impossible to locate at all, seemingly swallowed up by a bewildering array of folds of clothing and material and jackets and and all kinds of other things. The pitch black darkness had completely overwhelmed and overcome my senses. I didn't know where I was or what I was doing and I had no option but to scramble best as I could back to bed and endure a torturous wait for sunrise, anxiously hoping that the first light of dawn might arrive in time to be my salvation. I did make it because I know you'll be wondering, only just. 
The theme of oppressive, paralyzing darkness is repeated often throughout the Scriptures. You might be familiar with uh, a bunch of them. Uh, Darkness is a word that can often sum up ideas or themes of overwhelming ignorance, being blind, unknowing about who God is, lost in our ignorance. Darkness is often associated with sin, with being lost in our own, our own capacity to guide our own steps in the way in which we live. A darkness, you might remember, was the second most severe plague that God brought upon the Pharaoh of Egypt. A darkness, we were told, that is so thick that it was said it could be physically felt. Could you imagine that? Uh, outer darkness, as much as fire, was an image that Jesus himself often used to describe eternal judgment. Darkness was also what came over Jerusalem, you might recall, during the moment of Jesus' own crucifixion. And of course, perhaps the most well-known mention of darkness in Genesis chapter 1. Before God had created anything, before he had ever said, let there be, Genesis tells us that there was darkness. There was nothing other than formless, empty darkness. And yet, you might recall from Genesis chapter 1, by his word, God speaks light into existence. A light which pushes back the formless, empty darkness, making space for God to speak life into existence as well. You might remember that God's command of let there be light is soon followed by various commands of let there be life, whether that be in the sea or in the sky or on the land. Now, using words that deliberately echo the creation account of Genesis 1, of pushing back darkness, John's Gospel, John begins his account of Jesus' life and ministry in words that echo this language of light and dark and life, that we found right at the beginning of the Scriptures. Let me read to you the opening paragraph of John's Gospel, John's account of the life of Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John introduces us to Jesus, not through describing his relationship to Mary and to Joseph, not through tales of shepherds and angels and wise men, not even through the ancient hope-filled promises of the prophets. Rather, John introduces us to Jesus. He introduces us to the Word who was God and who was with God in the beginning in this rather grand, cosmic kind of way. As in Genesis, so too here we find that the Word who was God is the author of both light and life. And it turns out that even darkness is unable to overcome God's light, unable to extinguish it, unable to overwhelm it. 
the Word, who was God and who is God, who is light, is unable to be overcome or overwhelmed by the darkness. And there's enormous comfort in these words, I think. Words of comfort that actually echo throughout the rest of John's Gospel. And we'll begin to see concrete examples of what kinds of shape this comfort takes. For those who might feel frail and vulnerable, for those who might feel that they're on the verge of being overwhelmed or overcome by darkness, whether that is our own darkness in some sense or the darkness of the world around us or of others, there is enormous comfort in these words. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome this light. Uh, Often I think we fall into the trap of imagining that we're alone in holding back the darkness that threatens to overwhelm us. Uh, Oprah Winfrey, I think, speaks something of this sentiment uh, in one little clip that I read recently from what she had spoken. She wrote this, You have to find what sparks light in you so that you, in your own way, can illuminate the world. Sounds almost as grand, in some sense, as the words that open up John's Gospel. And yet, there's a bit of a terror to those words, don't you think? For, for, for Oprah, for we alone are ultimately responsible for sustaining our own light of life against the encroaching darkness. We have to find the light within us in order to illuminate the darkened world that lies beyond us. That's a pretty tall order, a slightly intimidating life mission, isn't it? Or perhaps a similar idea with a bit of a Hogwarts twist. Uh, You might be familiar with the the story of Harry Potter uh, and the particular spell that is the Patronus charm. A charm uh, that is the light of life summoned up, sustained from within the one practicing the spell sustained only from one's own emotional resources against the onslaught of darkness. You might remember that this spell issues in a blinding light, usually some animal that represents uh, the person or some part of their past history, and that blinding light summoned up from within, from their own emotional resources, their own memories, holds the darkness at bay. And yet, if you're familiar with the story, you'll know that there are those moments when the Patronus charm can't hold when the person's own internal resources can't hold the light that holds the darkness at bay. Many of us who have grappled with sustained sadness or weariness, let alone crippling depression, we will know how crushing it is to be told that we alone are responsible for sustaining our own spark of light or life. Who was equal to that task? John's Gospel begins by introducing us to the One who Himself sustains light and life for all people, One whose light will never be overcome by the gathering darkness. And we'll see the way in which Jesus Himself embodies that light for multiple different kinds of people as we work through John's Gospel. The light that we are called to place our hope in is not one that we have to sustain from our own strength or our own resources. This is not a self-help gospel. John's gospel won't teach you how to summon up the light of life from within you 
to sustain and enable you to endure. Instead, it will point you to the one who spoke light in darkness, whose light will never be overcome. Uh, One might have expected that people would instinctively recognise the source of their own light and life when they see it. Not so, it seems. This amazing light, we're told, that was coming into the world wasn't recognised. Have a look with me at uh, chapter 1, verse 6 and following. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Back in 2020, I was just reading this recently, back in 2020 in India, a family who were visiting a sick relative in hospital tragically unplugged the man's ventilator in order to plug in instead an air conditioner that they'd brought to the hospital with them to try and relieve his discomfort. In order to try and uh, suppress the spread of COVID, all the air conditioners had been turned off in the hospital so that the air wasn't blowing around everywhere, spreading infection. But as a result, it was quite hot. And so they thought that they would do their sick relative a favour and bring in the air conditioner in order to relieve his discomfort. So fixated were they on plugging in that which would bring the man comfort that they failed to recognise they were unplugging their relative from the very source which sustained his life. And it seems that that, in fact, is the exact tragedy that's presented here in these verses. The world failed to recognise the source of their life when he turned up. And even those who belonged especially to him, the Jewish people, failed to receive him. And it's perhaps somewhat of a heartbreaking illustration for what many of us find ourselves tempted to do daily, isn't it? To unplug ourselves from the God who gives us light and life, instead to secure some kind of comfort of a more fleeting kind. The tragedy is clear. Neither the world that God's Word had created, nor even His own people, the Jewish nation, recognised him. Even the explicit witness of John the Baptist, mentioned there in verses 6 to 7, even the witness of God's prophet failed to alert them to who it was who had arrived amongst them. Uh, There's more of that described for us in verses 19 to 28 this morning. We won't have time to have a look at that, but I do encourage you to have a glance over it perhaps later today. Now, I presume that the family who made that fatal decision to trade a ventilator for an air-conditioned comfort, they must have failed to acknowledge the witness of some kind of sign or warning that must have been there on the wall, warning them not to unplug it, the warning of consequences that would flow from unplugging that ventilator. And so it is in John's Gospel, we'll see again and again, there are multiple signs along the way pointing to Jesus as the source of light and life warning people who engage with Jesus not to overlook that this is the one from whom all their light and life flows, not to unplug themselves or distance themselves from Him. 
We'll see that over the course of the next six weeks. In fact, throughout the whole of John's Gospel. We won't, we're only going to look at John uh, 1 to 5 or so in the next few months. Uh, but later on in the year, we'll return to look at some of the later parts of John's Gospel. And time and time again, God provides signs that in this one, the Lord Jesus, in Him alone is all light and life. Uh, these signs to who Jesus is, they don't go universally ignored. Uh, in fact, the failure to recognise Jesus as a source of light and life wasn't a universal failure. There were some who did recognise who this one was. Uh, have a look with me at verse 12 to 13 briefly. Verse 12 to 13. John's Gospel writes, Yet to all, <coughs> excuse me. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Now here John is employing the metaphor of childbirth to describe how we ourselves might come to share in this life that is in God. I'm not going to dig into these verses in great depth uh, today, but it is worth noting that the whole point of using this metaphor of birth, childbirth, for how people come to share in the life of God, in God's life, is that children themselves play no part in receiving from those that they are born to. No child does anything to receive the life that is theirs in being born. It is something that comes simply to them as a gift. And likewise, the kind of life that God's children enjoy. We'll see this repeated again and again throughout John's Gospel. It's a gift that's received. It's not a life achievement or it's not something that we are to fashion for ourselves by our own frantic effort or will. Uh, I saw on my Twitter feed this week um, a post from New York University uh, regarding Taylor Swift who gave one of their commencement addresses. Now, I'm not a hater. Don't get on my case. I think Taylor Swift's great, but I'm not a hater. But she did make this statement in the course of her commencement speech which I think actually says quite a bit about the source of so much of our own anxiety and fear these days. She spoke and said, I know that it can be really overwhelming, uh, it can be really overwhelming to figure out who to be and when. I have some good news. It is totally up to you. I also have some terrifying news. It is totally up to you. Isn't that what our world tells us? That to know who we are is something that we are completely free to determine for ourselves. And yet, isn't that the terror? Isn't that the crippling anxiety that it is up to us only? That whatever we are, it's, it's on us. Where we crumble and fail, where we find ourselves overwhelmed by darkness pressing in, who we are, it's in no one's hands but ourselves. That can be a terrifying and crippling thing, pressure to live under. But in contrast, the life that Jesus calls us to is not one that we've been left to fashion for ourselves, to dream up or imagine or enact for ourselves. Rather, it is God's own life that we receive a share in as His precious children. God's life becomes ours through no scrambling or struggling of our own. 
That's a theme that will be explored in much greater detail, uh, which is why I'm not going into those verses in any, any more further detail this week. Uh, you might want to have a read ahead of John, uh, John chapter 3, where Jesus meets with Nicodemus, and Jesus unpacks this a little bit more about what it means to receive life, to be born again from God's power, rather than from human effort, struggle and striving. Uh, up until now, all this talk of light and life and darkness uh, perhaps has felt just a little bit on the abstract side, the theoretical, philosophical kind of side. And the opening of John's Gospel does have that philosophical and poetic kind of feel to it, doesn't it, in some sense? Who God is in Himself, what might it be like to look upon the light of His glory, exactly what shape this life that God is offering us, what, what shape might it concretely take? It's all been a little bit theoretical and esoteric, a little bit hard to grasp hold of and to relate to. But what is perhaps most striking, I reckon, about today's passage is not simply that God is offering us life, but how He offers that life to us. Have a look with me at uh, chapter 1, verse 14. And we'll read to the end. Chapter 1, verse 14, we read, The Word became flesh. Uh, Let's just hold up there for a moment, before we go any further. I know there's a whole paragraph to go. The Word became flesh. The Word, the one who was God. The one who created all that has ever had existence the one who sustains all life, the one who speaks light into existence to push back the darkness, the one who makes something where before there was nothing. Thanks, Nev. The one who makes something where only a moment before there had been nothing. He is the one who took on flesh. With all the limits of human chemistry, psychology, physiology, even with its mortality, with all its frailties, smells, blemishes and bruises, the Word became flesh. Let's keep reading. Verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling amongst us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And skip down to verse 16. Out of His fullness, we all have received grace in place of grace already given. For law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Moses and the law... They both communicated something good and true of God's glory, of God's grace and His truth. You might recall that as Moses came down uh, the mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments, he reflected something of God's own glory in his own face. It, It was a glory that faded, but he reflected something of God's goodness, His character, His majesty. And the law itself, the law that Moses brought down the mountain with him, that law also communicated something of God's holiness, 
of his distinctness, of his differentness to the darkened world around about them. But God the Son become flesh. He embodies the fullness of God's glory, the fullness of God's grace and truth, without any elements of it missing or absent or fading. By turning water into wine, an event that we'll read in chapter 2, a week or two's time, by turning water into wine, Jesus revealed in the flesh the abundant and joy-giving character of the eternal God. When Jesus stood beside a well, speaking intimately with the socially and morally shunned Samaritan woman, he revealed in the flesh the exact contours of God's grace and compassion. When Jesus told the lame man, lying there beside the pool, never quick enough to get in and receive his healing, when Jesus told the lame man to pick up his mat and to walk, even though it was a Sabbath, Jesus revealed in the flesh an authority that was equal to that of God the Father. And John doubles down on this key insight of God's glory revealed in the flesh, in the flesh of the Lord Jesus, in our final verse, verse 18. Let's have a look there as we finish up. We read in verse 18, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who himself is God, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Friends, if we wish to catch a concrete glimpse of what it looks like for God himself to offer us life, we will see it in the flesh when we look at Jesus. If we wish to see with our own eyes the glory of the eternal God, we will see it in the flesh when we look at Jesus. If we wish to see what it looks like for the boundaries of the world's darkness, maybe even for our own darkness to be pushed back to make space for abundant life, then we will see what that looks like in the flesh when we look at Jesus and how he engages and interacts with others throughout the course of John's Gospel. Back right at the start of the Bible, the Scriptures themselves in Genesis, God spoke the word, let there be light. And the darkness was pushed back, creating room for God also to to declare, let there be light. And in Jesus, in the word made flesh... God is doing the same thing again for us. Pushing back the darkness that encroaches either from without or from within so that he might also declare, let there be life and life to the full. Let's pray that as we continue to work through John's Gospel over the coming weeks, we might not fail to recognise and to receive all that God is showing of himself in and through the person of his Son, the Word made flesh. Let's pray. Our dearest Father, we so often sense a world that fails to know you. Sometimes, Father, we sense that darkness within ourselves as well. 
Father, we see a world that embraces the darkness of evil, of turning away from the life and light that you offer in your Son. And Father, sometimes the knowledge of that darkness can be overwhelming and suffocating. Father, we ask that as we read through John's Gospel this coming term, we might be able to, by the working of your Spirit, recognise the light and life that you have given us in your one and only Son. That as we turn to him, the one who is light would push back all darkness and also speak into us the words, let there be life, that we might have that life and have it to the full in the one who has come to dwell amongst us. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.